Thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast from Visit Aurora from the rafters of the Stanley Marketplace. This is the show dedicated to telling the stories of Aurora, Colorado. Hi there, I'm Dave, Senior Marketing Manager for Visit Aurora. The Colorado Freedom Memorial is the first memorial in the United States dedicated to all wars and all branches of service containing the names of all those who died from a single state in those wars. Today we're joined by the founder and executive director of the Colorado Freedom Memorial and the board chair for Visit Aurora, Mr. Rick Crandall. Rick, thank you for taking the time today. Of course, board chair. I had to show up. Right? Absolutely. Uh, for 30 years, you were one of the prominent voices of the metro area on Denver Radio, program director and morning show host on Easy 1430. But your radio experience began well before that during your time in the Air Force, right? Yeah, 1976. Um, actually, uh, went to the went into the Air Force, took a blind shot at getting into radio in the Air Force. I had to send an audition tape in from from here at Lowry. I was lived here, was from Aurora, and sent in an audition tape. But while I was waiting to hear whether I got accepted or not, I got chipped off to basic training. So I was down there hoping I was going to get radio. And if it wasn't going to be radio, it was going to be security police, which I would have been horrid at. So uh, about halfway through basic training, I got a notice down there said, yep, you've been accepted to the Defense Information School at the time. It was at Fort, Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana. And uh, so began my radio career. Because of my ignorance, the image that immediately comes to mind is Robin Williams. Yep. It, was that it your experience? <laughs> yes. Was it a similar kind of program that you were doing? Yeah, I was. So I, I, I left there and, and was sent to Guam. Um, spent 15 months in Guam. Did the morning show. My first shift when I got there, they said, "Hey, we're going to have you do mornings," and it was surprisingly like Robin Williams and, and Good Morning Vietnam. That was four years um, after the. Well, uh, three years after the end of the Vietnam War, and so uh, there was still remnants of Vietnam there in Guam. Yeah, but the morning show was just—I mean, it was like that. It was just—I was speaking to the military guys on base, right? That's where we were broadcasting to. I'd finish my finish my show. I'd walk over to the dining hall that was just across the wave, and they'd be there waiting with my breakfast for me when <laughs> I got there. And it was all very much like, "Ah, oh, this is pretty cool stuff." I feel like all radio people know the answer to this question. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Do you remember? Remember the first song you ever talked of? Um, yeah, let's see. It was late '70s, so it could easily have been Barry Manilow. It could, have, you know, <laughs> Weekend in New England was big then. I'll take that as a as a stab, but uh, yeah. A lot of 70s stuff and, and and a lot of variety back then even because just the, the range of listeners, the guys that were stationed there. This is also, I think, a very common experience. Do you still have nightmares of dead air? Yes. Every day? Yeah. Or, or often? Yeah. yeah. I do too. I, like, I yeah. can't get into the control room. Yes. For some reason, the computer won't work. The transmitter yep. has fallen over. That never leaves you, does it? You no. Know, and the other thing that doesn't leave you, you know, I've, it's been two years now since I, I left radio and I, you know, I still find myself in the car talking up posts. I yeah. still find myself knowing that there's, you know, this song's getting ready to end. Where's the dude? Where, you know, what are they going to do next? Yeah, you just, the timing, that innate sense of timing that right. you develop is really kind of, it's kind of cool and freaky. We're the only people that listen for the things between the songs. Yeah. We're, we're far more interested in that to the behest of our companions. Yep. We're way interested in the, the imaging and, and whoever the, the host totally. is at the time. And, and the other thing is to, um, watching a football game when a commercial break stops, getting up going out grabbing something and sitting back down before the game starts right. again right you get really quick with you get all really that. good to this day you still connect with your audience via facebook with your your breakfast club at shady acres congrats on 500 episodes by the way 
on that. That's really cool. Why was it important for you to keep that connection with your audience? You know, when when my show ended on the radio, it wasn't by my choice. It was simply because the the owners decided to flip the format to Mm -hmm. a sports gambling. KZW was so unique formatically. I mean, there was nothing like it anywhere around and and largely anywhere in the country anymore. We had listeners all, all across the country because we played, you know, everything. I'd drop a Glenn Miller record and then follow that up with uh, something from, uh, you know, the Beach Boys or, or so. I mean, it was just a really eclectic mix of music, but it worked here partly because I just had a great reputation with all the people that listened and they just kind of thought, this is so quirky and cool. I'm going to listen to it. Well, when it ended, I, I recorded, I pre-recorded a four hour final show, which they proceeded to cut off after two hours. So I knew that people who listened later in the morning, which was a large part of my audience, right. they were going to wake up, turn on the radio and go, what happened to have no explanation. So I decided, you know what, tomorrow morning, I'm going to hop on Facebook and I'm just going to post something explaining what happened. And I did that the next day from the family room at my house and I said, hey, I know a lot of you don't know why, what, how, here's the deal, here's where it is. How about next couple of days I'll just hang out with you here and we'll just kind of figure it out. A couple of days became a couple of weeks, became a couple of months and now, you know, 500 of these things later, you know, a couple thousand people are dropping by every morning to, I mean, that's not a huge number in the world of social media, but for, you know, for that little AM station and for those people, it's still important that we we have this gathering. It just, it, that audience Audience, you know, people in their 60s, early 70s, late 50s, where else are they going to go? There was, n- There's no place else they were going to go find what we did. I can't put the music on the Facebook post, but I can put all the little features we did, yeah. and that's what we've done. And it's valuable. It absolutely is. I think one of the seminal moments of your career, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but for the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, you were able to interview seven survivors. Can, yeah. can you speak to how powerful that experience was? Yeah, and uh, powerful enough that it actually changed the course of my life from that moment forward. Uh, And it was very early on. It was the first year at KZW 1991. And uh, I still hadn't quite connected with the audience. When I walked in, I was, let's see, 91. I was 36 years old. And the average age of the listener was 75 at the time. It was a really old audience. And and we'd sort of kind of gotten close to one another, but I was still looking for that breakthrough thing. I got a call from a gentleman named Irv Obermeyer, who became a dear friend and a and a mentor of sorts for me. And Irv uh, said, hey, I'm a Pearl Harbor survivor. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the attack at Pearl. Would you like to have some Pearl Harbor survivors in the studio? And I said, God, that'll be great. The thing about KZW at the time, people didn't like you talking. Play the music, shut up. I mean, that was purely what it was. And here was this guy in the morning now talking to them. (laughs) Why are you talking? Well, that morning I had seven Pearl Harbor survivors gathered around me in the studio and I let them talk for an hour and a half. And the the interesting thing to me was as Irv and the others were sharing their story with me, I could see in their eyes that they were actually reliving it as they were telling it. You can tell when somebody really, mm-hmm. they, you know they're seeing it. And I was taken with that. How powerful is a story that it's actually transporting the teller back to the actual event as they recount it. And then the fact that it was a military story interested me because I knew 
knew we had a lot of World War II veterans that were listeners of the radio station. So it was that day, that moment that I was set on the path that's taken to me where I am now. Well, and in 2000, you broadcasted from the Normandy American Cemetery overlooking Omaha Beach. Yeah. One of the seminal locations on D-Day, which turned the tide for the Allies in World War II. Yep. I can't imagine the feeling of that place, the energy that you must have felt. Yeah. Is that experience tied with uh, talking to the, the veterans from Pearl Harbor? Is that kind of what initially sparked the idea of the Colorado Freedom Memorial? Yeah. And in, in fact, that broadcast was intended to be the kickoff of a year and a half tribute at the radio station to World War II veterans. Um, at that point in 2000, we were 55 years after the end of their war. They were starting to age out a bit. They were getting into their early 70s. Uh, the oldest of them may be approaching 80. And I figured this is our last chance while they're still with us to really let them know how appreciative we are. So we kicked it off with that broadcast and finished it um, on December 7th uh, of that year aboard the USS uh, Missouri right. in Pearl Harbor with Irv Obermeyer sitting right next to me on the deck of the Missouri as I broadcast back to Denver. So we started we started in 2000 or 2001, uh, December 7th. We finished with the, uh, with the 60th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. But it was those events. I will tell you, at Normandy, I did the broadcast. We had some great guests on. I did. I was in a tool shed doing the broadcast because it was where I could get to a telephone line to hook up the old radio equipment <laughs> back in the day. And we finished up. We were getting close to the end. And the superintendent of the cemetery said to me, hey, Rick, we're done. It's like five in the evening then there. He said, we're all finished for the day. He said, we're wrapped up. When you're done, just wrap up your stuff, close the door. And if you wouldn't mind, just when you leave, pull the gate shut behind you. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm not usually entrusted with that kind of adult <laughs> responsibility. This, you sh I just pull the gate shut. He said, look, that's my house right over there. I said, okay. So we packed everything up, put it in a rental car we had. And I turned around and looked and there was that cemetery with mm -hmm. over 9,000 crosses and, and stars of David. And there was the English Channel and the cliffs at Omaha Beach that they had come up. It was all right there. And it drew me back into the cemetery. I turned around, I walked back in. The only living person in that cemetery at that moment was me mm. and all of them. And it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. And I'm, I'm certain the seed was planted then for the Colorado Freedom Memorial. Uh, Irv had kind of led it to me, you know, earlier. Uh, that event kind of closed the deal. One of the things I, I love about radio is the true spirit of community that can form through it. When it's done right, you opened your life to your audience during your time on KZW, that, and they become a part of it. And one of the rewards of that is they stepped up and contributed to the construction of the memorial. That had to be so affirming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really... Look, I was uh, I was this uh, radio guy who thought oh, I'm going to build this memorial. How long can that take? Five, six months? You know, how long can it take to actually do this? This got to be the easiest thing. Well, it took 12 years. <laughs> yeah. And the reason it took 12 years is because I refused to put corporate logos on the memorial. Right. We were going to put the names of those from Colorado killed in action on that memorial, and that was it. And and if you got that, great. Lockheed Martin, they got it. They gave us a donation. Others did, mm -hmm. but the big corporate in Colorado didn't because they couldn't understand why I wouldn't put a bronze plaque on there with their logo. And so it took the listeners of that radio station. And frankly, I had 10 years into this fundraising project, we were still $400,000 short of what we needed to build it. So I did a, a, a fundraiser. I did a radiothon from Dry Dock Brewing Company here in Aurora mm -hmm. on Memorial Day of 2012. And 
I had decided to myself without saying a word to anybody that if we don't raise the money in this broadcast, I'm going to fold this up. I've been carrying it forever, right? At that point, 12 years. If I can't raise it now, we've tried. It's great. We go through the whole day. We get to five o'clock in the afternoon and we've raised $50,000, 60000 yeah. And I'm at peace with this. I've done everything I can. So I'm figuring at six o'clock when we sign off, after we're done, I'm going to tell my wife and everybody else, we're folding it up. We did our best. God bless you and everybody. Let's donate the money to a good veterans cause. Mm-hmm. My wife gets a call on her cell phone in the five o'clock hour from a guy who was, was a listener and a, a wealthy a philanthropist here in town. He called her cell phone and he said, Diane, how much money does Rick's do you still need? And she said to him, $335,000. He said, I'll write the check. Wow. And she wow. was like in shock. Yeah. Uh, to the point where she somehow got disconnected from him and she thought, oh no. And so she's, <laughs> she tried to call the guy back. He finally calls her and he's laughing and he says, relax, relax. He says, you know, I'm good for it. I will get the money to you. He said, do me a favor. She said, anything. He said, tell Rick to shut up and play music now. <laughs> And it all comes full circle. (laughs) And so so that was how it all came about. I mean, it's just an amazing story. The whole thing is so amazing. That donor who asked to be anonymous and has been anonymous to this day, Diane and I know him and nobody else, um, we took him out the night before we dedicated the memorial so he could see the Mm -hmm. memorial without being in the fuss of everybody else. His father had served in World War II and was killed aboard us. He was a commander of a submarine and was killed in Tokyo Bay wow. uh, in a bombing. His wife's uncle was killed in Korea and his wife's uncle's name is on the memorial. So he had a connection to it. He loved the radio station. And so at a time when we needed it, it just was that, you know, you get those little angels along the way that show up. And in this case, it was that. That's incredible. Yeah. Over 6,000 heroes are featured on the memorial. What, what was the process like for researching the honorees? Is it more involved than just asking for military records? Yeah. In fact, you can't rely on military records. Um, You know, a lot of us that served in the military, I was in the Air Force six years. Military record keeping is... Right, it's 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 like that. I mean, it's a pretty arduous task for us. It doesn't stop. We still know we have six thousand two hundred eighteen names in our database at this time. We know we still don't have them all. We we just don't. You figure Spanish American War that we start with through today. The records were kept in steno pads written in by pencil, and then when a pad was filled, they twined it all up, put it in a bag, brought it back home when the war was over, Mm -hmm. and that was the record who was killed there. World War One comes along. We're starting to get into the infancy of manual typewriters. And so now they're taking old records, converting them to typewritten, cleaner records. But they're looking at the steno pads and going, gosh, is that an I or an L? Right? Yeah. And so begins this chain of unfortunate events that leads to misspelled names. That's why a lot of military memorials that you see, Vietnam Memorial in DC, there are misspelled names there because we have to rely on some record to begin the process. So it's hard. We continue to research county clerks and newspapers and uh, the Western History Collection down at the Denver Public Library, the Colorado uh, History Colorado. Um, We're getting close to a partnership with 
Fold 3, which is uh, an offshoot of Ancestry.com. So we still keep searching. We've got volunteers that do it for us. And, uh, you know, I don't know that we'll ever have them all, but we're pretty, we're, we're closer than any record that has existed to this point. There's some poignant decisions that are made in the design of the memorial. Yeah. Uh, the names aren't in alphabetical order. The glass panels of the memorial lean, which creates a, a beautiful stunning effect, particularly during, you know, sunset. Yeah. Uh, but there's a much deeper meaning behind those choices. Yeah. The panels falling back and forth meant to represent, symbolize men and women falling on the battlefield. Uh, the names not in alphabetical order meant to symbolize the chaos of war. Um, the top of the, the memorial, as you look at it, the panels are peaked. That was my only request uh, in the design of the memorial. I am a, not an artist, <laughs> but I have always had this romantic notion that most of those that left Colorado and didn't come home, those mountains were one of the last things they saw from yeah. home when they left, either by train or plane or however it happened. And I wanted those mountains reflected in the memorial, and that's the peaked tops that you see. Um, all of it, 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 when you go out there, it's really pretty cool. I mean, you can see the memorial and go, gosh, that's cool. But then when you learn these little histories, which is why we need a visitor center. <laughs> the Colorado Freedom Memorial is dedicated to all of the Colorado veterans killed in action since Colorado became a state in 1876. Just off the top of your head, do you recall the first name and, and which conflict they yeah. served in? So Spanish-American War is the first um, war uh, after Colorado became a state. And uh, we're pretty sure that we've now identified the first one. And it was Fred Springstead from Golden. Wow. Fred was uh, actually got married um, in San Francisco. When they left Denver and went by train to San Francisco and were getting ready to board ship, his uh, fiance had chased after him out there, met him there, and they got married there before he got on the, the ship and left. Fred was a cook, and so by all rights, shouldn't have been anywhere near shooting, right? He right. should have been. But one night he said uh, to his boss in the kitchen, uh, look, I didn't come all this way just to cook. I, I need to go up front. And so he was allowed to go up that night after everything was cleaned up. He reported to the front. And sometime that night, while he was in his foxhole, he stood up to ask somebody in a foxhole next to him a question, and a sniper killed him. And Fred uh, became the first Coloradan killed in action since we became a state. One of 48 from Colorado killed in the Spanish-American War. So he's first. And what's amazing is all 6,000 plus have stories that are worthy of being told and deserve to be remembered. And unfortunately, with military records, all you get is name ranks or yeah. number, you know, maybe where they died, when, you know, when they died, but maybe where. I know very, very little about the men and women on our memorial, which makes me sad and which has really led to us making a real concerted effort to get people to share stories they know of family members who, who were killed in action so that we can share their stories and tell their stories. One of the poignant things you immediately notice at the memorial is all of the flags on display are at half mass, regardless of what's going on in the world at the moment. Uh, that was a conscious decision and a powerful statement. Yeah, one of five places that we know of in the country that display fa flags like that permanently. And for us, it was a it was a really it was recommended to us by the chief of military protocol for the state of Colorado. Um, she said, you know, there's nothing that says you can't. And in your case, because we're not only a memorial, but of the 6,200, near 4,000, their remains never came back to Colorado. They're either buried overseas or they were lost at sea. Yeah. You know, whatever whatever the circumstances. And so for those families, they never had a grave site to go to. 
So when they come to the memorial, it's their gravesite. Yeah. When when we built that memorial and put those names up, it was the first time that their loved one had a presence here at home. So you see Gold Star families come out every day to the memorial and go and just kind of sit by their loved one's name. Or men and women who served with them, maybe saw them die on the battlefield or, or served beside them, they come. So we're not only a memorial, but we're actually almost part cemetery as well because it becomes a final resting place. So that's why we permanently display the flags that way. And people absolutely love it when they understand the reason. What are some of the, the reactions that you get from family members when they when they see the memorial? From, from very quiet and don't talk. I have a Vietnam veteran that comes and will sit out in his car in the parking lot, but has never come up to the memorial. Wow. It's too close for him. Too obviously um, emotional, um, some crying. But interestingly, about three years ago, a lady named Sherry Bush, whose son Andrew Rydell is on the memorial, killed in Iraq. What she was, and I've known her for a long time. She's been on some panels with me. She's a good close friend. One day she was out. She said, you know, I'm happy when I'm out here. And I thought, what the heck? <laughs> happy? I said, what do you mean? And she said, when I go to his grave, it's real. He's there and there's nothing I can do about it. And he's that close and I've lost him. And I'm reminded when I see his grave of the call and the knock on the door and all of the bad that went with it. She said, when I come here to the Colorado Freedom Memorial and stand in front of his name and see it, when I see his name, all that come back are happy memories mm -hmm. to me. here And points of pride. Correct. Wow. So she said, here. And, and I was like, that, I mean, I never would have imagined that, right? And since then, I've had a couple of other gold stars unprompted tell me the very same thing. And for folks that don't know, I think uh, I, I tend to forget a gold star family, gold star, if your loved one is killed in action, you become a gold star mother or sister or husband or uncle. or So you become a gold star family member. And um, we, uh, we have a pretty good group of gold star family members that have kind of been really supportive of the memorial, love what it means. And we have a gold star uh, family uh, uh, father and, and mother who are on our board. Um, pretty remarkable, and I've learned a lot from them. The memorial is unique in that you have the unenviable and dreadful task of adding names Yeah. Uh, when losses occur. Uh, in a perfect world, another name would never be added to the memorial. Uh, but when that happens, is there a process before a name is added to the memorial? Yeah. And, uh, interestingly, it's a glass memorial, right? And it, when we dedicated the memorial, when we had it uh, built in, in dedicated. The Italians had just come up with a new process for printing on glass. And so the Freedom Memorial, we have two very thick, well, very thick, like inch, inch and a half thick pieces of glass. And in between them, a wafer thin piece of glass on which the names are printed. So in order to add names to the memorial, we have to replace an entire panel. Mm. Well, the glass was done by Viracon, the uh, largest commercial glass producer in America and Minnesota. And each panel of glass on the memorial is different. So um, it's expensive when you have the world, the, the largest glass producer in the country shut down and 
custom fit for your project yeah. <laughs> 21 different sizes. That's expensive. In fact, all the glass on the memorial as it sits right now, $450,000, almost half a million dollars in glass. So we had vandalism out there about five years ago. A piece of glass was shattered. It was the only piece of glass on the memorial that didn't have anything on it. Wow. And it was the smallest piece of glass on the memorial, and it was $45,000 to replace it, right? So we can't do that often. When we replaced that piece, we were able to add 120 names that we had discovered since we dedicated the memorial. So we got those up. What we're about to do uh, is something we've done in the past. We're going to do it again. We're about to put in a, a granite slab, and on the granite slab, we'll etch names as we discover them. We call it the transition stone, and it's the transition between, okay, they're here and they're recognizing them, and then eventually we get them to the memorial with the others they served with or from other conflicts. So I love throughout the year that the memorial becomes a gathering place for the community. Can you talk a little bit about some of the events that yeah. is held throughout the, the year at the memorial? It is really, look, I'm the radio guy who thought, I'm going to build this thing, and then that's it. I'm done. See ya. <laughs> I'm out of here. Right? And we dedicated it, and I thought, phew, thank goodness, 12 years. Here it is. See ya. I'm going to go back to our studio, sit there in the morning, drink some coffee, share some chuckles. And I walked away and and like two days after we dedicated it, I was kind of tugging, it was tugging at me again that you're not quite done with this thing here yet, Junior. So <laughs> why? What, what else needs to happen? And the first thing that we did was we came up with this event called Luminarias that we do uh, in November now. We do it the three days around Veterans Day. So it's usually a Thursday. It's, it is a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. For three hours each of those nights, we display in the park 6,218 glass jars, individual glass jars, each with an LED candle in it. And uh, at 4.30, a crew comes and turns those candles off. Volunteers come and turn them all on. At 8 o'clock, another crew comes and turns them all off. We do it for three nights, a jar for each name on the Colorado Freedom Memorial. It's a week-long process. We, um, The first day of the week, we have a volunteer group come out and they template the park. Spray paint little dots, 6,218 dots, where each of the jars will go. And the reason for that is because then we have the third grade class from Indian Ridge Elementary School in Aurora. We have the third grade class come out and they place all the jars for us. And for the third graders, the entire third grade class, it's a day to learn about service and sacrifice. For us, it's an opportunity. The first couple of years, we place the jars. At 6'2", it's pretty far down to put the jar down on the ground, but <laughs> yeah. when you're a third grader, you're halfway there. There you right? go. So, Efficiency. <laughs> yes, indeed. Plus, unbounded energy after you feed them a Snickers and turn them loose. So, uh, so we use the kids, and then we have the three nights of the lights. Why the lights? We call it Light Their Way Home. Mm-hmm. We wanted to do something near the holidays, but you know, it would have been d- d- gross to put Santa Claus on top of the right. memorial, right? With right. the sleigh and the reindeer. I mean, I, I, we couldn't do that. What could we do in this light? I mean, light is such a symbol of the holidays, mm-hmm. this light. And so we have the 6,200 lights, uh, some of them flicker, and it looks to give motion to it. And so, in that very nature, kind of gives life. And people, it, we had our largest crowd of that we've ever had over the last three nights this last 
last year, it's become very popular. That event and then the event we do Memorial Day weekend, which is not so much for the Gold Star families to come out and pay respects, but it's for the community to be able to come Memorial Day weekend, take an hour and a half out of your day, come out and remember what it's all about. So those are really our two big events. We have events all year long. Uh, Buckley Space, Worst Space, uh, folks from out there use it all the time for promotion ceremonies, retirement ceremonies, blah, 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 blah. So it's a pretty busy place. I imagine this year in particular is going to be busy. It's the 10th anniversary of the Memorial's dedication. What, yeah. what are some of the plans for that commemoration? Yeah, it's crazy. And I'm, I'm in the middle of sending out all kinds of requests for support right now. Just yesterday, I invited the U.S. Air Force Honor Guard and Drill Team to come out from Washington, D.C. to be a part of the ceremony. They've been out twice um, at the Memorial, and uh, hopefully we'll get them again. We'll have uh, military flyovers. We're going to have living history uh, exhibits with, with reenactors and uh, on and on. It's going to be a special day. The Sound of the Rockies Men's Chorus from here in Denver, who who was there the day we dedicated it, will be back to to perform their brilliant. And and we'll have some special guests and other things that'll happen. It, it's going to be a pretty 10 years. I mean, that one, it goes by ridiculously fast. And two, at the 10th anniversary, we'll be able to really launch for the public uh, the next project, which is the Visitor and Education Center that we're in the middle of raising money for now. It's the evolution of the Colorado Freedom Memorial and Education Center. What does that project mean and, and where are we at with it? We have now for 10 years had this beautiful memorial and two additional monuments that we've put out there. The Gold Star Families Memorial Monument. You know, when when the fallen, when, when the men and women we honor on the memorial are killed on the battlefield, their war ends. Their families just begins. Mm-hmm. And for the families, the battle lasts often much longer than their loved ones did, right? It's, they carry that the rest of their lives. So we, we, it was important that we have a memorial in honor of them, and we do. And then we have the bronze, or the bronze, the granite pillars at the base of which is soil from American military cemeteries oh. around the world. Uh, we have eight pillars uh, representing eight countries where Coloradans from World War One or World War Two are buried, from France, from the Argonne Cemetery, we have soil from the gravesite of John Buckley, who Buckley mm. Space Force Base is named for. We have soil from his grave across the street. So, so we have all those monuments. We don't have a building. We have Mother Nature, for some reason, has been okay with us being out there year-round and not, you know, we, we did have one time we had to evacuate to the Beck Rec Center because of a tornado warning. Yeah. We did, you know, stuff like, but we've not had to ever cancel a, one of our programs because of weather. So we're about to run out of luck. I think we need to get a, this visitor center where we can go indoors. One, it becomes a gathering space for anybody that comes to the memorial. It's your starting point. We're going to have a 150-seat theater in the place where we can do presentations from historians, authors, veterans, and others to educate people about this cost of freedom and what we do, how, how we remember. Uh, it'll have a classroom for the kids on the field trips that come out. At this point, they get out there, they get off the bus, we walk them up, show them the memorial, they ooh and ah, they get on the bus and leave. I want there to be one step required before they get to the memorial, and that's to teach them a little bit. Yeah. I want to get them in a classroom. Give them context. Give them a little 
little understanding for what they're about to walk out and see before they walk out and see it. So we'll have a classroom there. We'll have an exhibit hall. Uh, we just found out uh, earlier this year that we have we are being uh, awarded really um, a piece of steel beam from the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor, not from the actual ship that's sunk there where the memorial is, but after the attack at Pearl when they were clearing the harbor, the ships that sank like the Arizona still had masts above water. So they cut them off below the water line and towed them to shore. And they've been there ever since. 80 years they've been over. Mm. And so we're getting a four foot section of beam from the Arizona that we'll have in an exhibit hall on the second floor of the, the visitor center. It's really going to be a beautiful facility and have a big purpose in the community. So we've started raising money. We just received a, uh, a $1.5 million grant from uh, Representative Crow's uh, appropriations package. It's a quarter of what we need to raise. So that seed money will really get it. The, the fundraising start. part f- uh, fired up now. So this week, we uh, at the city council meeting, they unanimously approved a proposal that was presented by uh, council member Zivonik and, and Jarinski. They, uh, they had a proposal to approve the memorial for inclusion in the park where the, I mean, the visitor center in the park where the memorial is. It passed unanimously. So nice. now we proceed with uh, with approval. So, yep, that's the next thing. I'm really excited. We're in the middle of building everything that's going to happen in the building once it's open. Uh, we have a design firm hired, architects hired that are designing the building. So it's pretty exciting. Versus the first time when it took 12 years, yeah. I told everybody when I said, okay, let's do this. I don't have 12 years this time, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't expect to go anywhere anytime soon, but I'm older now that I, what I'd like to do is get it built and then have a few years in it just to see yeah. what we can do in there. And it's, it's going to be, it's going to face the Freedom Memorial and uh, Christopher Kenton, who designed the Colorado Freedom Memorial, is designing the Visitor Center. So it's, it's going to be pretty cool. I'm sure you've heard this ad nauseum, but but thank you for all your hard work on this. It is invaluable. It's an important part of our history. It's an important part of Colorado's history, and, and, and it's important to these families and to our community. So thank you for all your hard work of and dedication course, to all of this. Of course. No, I appreciate that. And, and I wish, you know, I think I know now, I, I, at the very beginning, I'd get asked all the time, why, what made you want to do this? Why did you do this? What was it that made you want to do this? And for the longest time, I didn't have a good answer because I wasn't sure. Yeah. I mean, I knew the broadcast. It had, I, I knew something about that had had caused this. Um, and then I recalled that during that broadcast, the superintendent of the cemetery would bring guests up for me to talk to. And he brought a guy up from California and the guy looked really cranky. They're coming up the walkway to this where I'm sitting. And the guy came in, he kind of plopped down and I said, hey, so what brings you? You've been here before? And he's like, nope, my first time I've been here. So okay. I said, why, what do you, what brings you here? He said, my brother's buried here. I said, okay. First time you've been here? He said, yeah, I figured I, you know, I'm getting older now. I figured I needed to come see this. He was my best friend. He was the person I was the closest to. And when he was killed, the government asked my dad if they wanted to, if he wanted if him to be buried overseas in a cemetery with others that died here or, or sent home. That was an option families had. And his dad decided to have him buried overseas. They had grieved once. Mm-hmm. If we bring him home, we have to go through the whole thing again. I get that. Right. He didn't get that. It made him angry. He said, I decided right then and there, it wasn't the Germans that killed my dad. It was my dad or killed my brother. It was my dad. And he said, I hated him for the rest of my life. And he said, I didn't have a 
a relationship with him. And so there. And I said, so you're here now? And he said, yeah. I said, do me a favor. After you go out to see your brother, stop by and see me again. He said, I got up and out he went. <laughs> a couple hours went by and I thought, well, he blew me off. Okay, right. you know, whatever. It happens. And then I see him. Here he comes. He's coming back up the walkway. And he plops down in front of me and his, his eyes are puffy. I knew he'd been crying. I could tell. And I said, so? And he said, my dad was right. Mm. This is where my brother should have been. I said, oh. He said, now, how do you repair a relationship with your dad that's no longer here? And off he went. And I thought, wow. And I think somehow in the back of my mind, I was thinking after that, how many other families must there be like that? Because they're, like I said, you know, the 4,000 of them never came home. Often somebody's decision to have them buried overseas somewhere. In those American military cemeteries, I think there's like 2,600 Coloradans that are buried in total in, in those. How many families had that difficult decision? We're not bringing them home. We've grieved. Let's let them lie where he or she was killed in action and and how many people were torn up by that and so maybe this is some way we could this memorial maybe could make it right so if we've accomplished that that's cool it's powerful mr rick crandall i got just a couple more questions before yeah. i let you go here tell me a little bit about the podcast you're involved with with the wings over the rockies museum that seems like a fun project and it looks like you're having a blast doing it. i'm having a total blast doing it um john barry who's the ceo uh president and ceo at wings over the rockies uh, air and space museum his been a friend for a while. He was superintendent of Aurora Public Schools for a while. He was, you know, he's got a retired uh, two-star general. He's, you know, had a great uh, military career. Just, I've known him for a long time and had done things with Wings Over the Rockies off and on during my radio time. But they reached out to me one day and they said, hey, we're, we're thinking about doing this uh, podcast. They have a PBS television program called Behind the Wings, which airs on Rocky Mountain PBS. I think now it, it's four times a year, but they wanted to do a companion podcast and asked if I'd be interested and I jumped at it. I mean, I'm a kid from the 60s who remembered being in Aurora, Colorado in 1969, July, when Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon, sitting in my front yard, swearing to God I could see Neil on the moon. I could see him. That's <laughs> I can. So, so I grew up around aviation in the Air Force. My dad was in the Air Force. The sound of jets I could listen to all day. So I jumped. I said, please. And so we're now into the second season, halfway through the second season of the Behind the Wings podcast podcast and it's all about aviation and we've had people on everywhere from uh, Jimmy Doolittle's granddaughter to um, Eileen Collins recently who was the first female pilot and then commander of a shuttle mission now we just interview oh, we've interviewed some people who have created these drones that are now flying human organs at Native American at, at reservation land because of the inaccessibility they're you know they're they're delivering blood when they need transfusions and stuff by drone. And I mean, just all the things are related to aviation. And it's really been fun. I've, I love doing it. And, you know, it's become kind of popular. I guess it, it's got a really crazy ranking as far as aviation podcasts nice. go in the States. So, yeah, we're in the, we're, I think we have a, just a couple of interviews left to do for season two. It's kind of weird how podcast seasons work. They're kind of different than any other broadcast yeah, We're making it I up as we go along. True. <laughs> it's absolutely No true. best practices from corporate on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're about getting close to the end of two, and I, I'm sure there will be a three. But yeah, it's a blast. Uh, you gave uh, it, it wasn't a scolding; it was almost like a football coach um, inspirational speech at the end of the Armed Forces breakfast and acknowledgement a few months ago, and it was powerful. Uh, you grew up in Aurora. What does this place mean to you? You know, we moved here in 1969. My dad had been in Vietnam for a year. We waited it uh, in two 
Tucson, Arizona while he was in, in Vietnam and then got word that he was going to be stationed here. And he had asked for it. At that point in Vietnam, when you were coming home from Vietnam, they said, where do you want to go? And they were doing their best to try to give it to you. And he picked a Lowry here in Denver because um, that had been where he had gotten his training early in his career in the 50s. So they gave him Lowry. We moved here in 69, early 69. And um, and I've mostly, except for some time away in Colorado Springs and in Guam, I've mostly been here, right? And I'm incredibly proud of what the town has become. You know, it's like any city. We've had rough patches. We've had things that have happened here that have been unfortunate. We've, you know, would take uh, our fair share of do-overs if we could on things, but you move forward. And what I'm proudest about is how we've moved forward. And this meld of cultures that has happened here is just unbelievable. I I can't get enough of it. You know, being a, a military brat, we lived in Africa for three years when I was really young, uh, off base. So, I, you know, I'm familiar, you know, from childhood with that. We lived in Germany. I, I travel. I, I was born at uh, Port Wainimi Naval Air Station in Oxnard, California, right on the ocean. And so if I'm not near the ocean, like once or twice a year, I get a little <laughs> bit restless, right? I love the world. And, and isn't it crazy that, uh, that here in Aurora, with the number of languages that are spoken and the variety of cultures, you don't have to go far to see the world. I'm very proud of this city and what it's grown up to be. And soon, maybe in my lifetime, maybe just after, it's going to be bigger than Denver. Yep. It's going to have a bigger population. So, But what I don't like is that people in this town are, are reluctant to say they're proud. They live in Aurora. There's still some stigma in the metro area about, oh, you live in Aurora. Stop it. Yeah, I do. So when I was on the radio, there weren't many people. Aurora was the butt of a lot of jokes on the right. radio in Denver. I was the guy that was saying, stop it. You know what? I, yes, I live there. I do live there and I like it there. So, and I still do. And I still do. And now as board chair of Visit Aurora, you know, it's pretty important that I say that I'm proud <laughs> I live in Aurora and I like it. But I do like this town. I like what it's growing. It's growing into its own skin. It's finding its identity. Um, we're finding people that uh, that are, are dreamers and builders and see the potential and are coming to this town to, to help grow the new Aurora. And I, I just think it's a really cool time to be here. Uh, when you come to Aurora, make sure you visit the Colorado Freedom Memorial in Aurora at 756 Telluride Street. You can also learn more at coloradofreedommemorial.com and make sure to follow on Facebook and Instagram at Colorado Freedom Memorial. And also make sure you follow Rick Crandall on Facebook at rick.crandall. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time today. Hey, my pleasure. Always good to be with you, Dave. Thanks. Hey, thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast. Visit Aurora is the official destination marketing organization for the city of Aurora, Colorado, and acts as the primary liaison between meeting planners and hotel partners. As Aurora's convention and visitors bureau, Visit Aurora's mission is grounded in showcasing Aurora as a premier destination for meetings, business, and leisure travel. Visit Aurora represents more than 75 plus hotel properties with 13,500 plus guest rooms and more than 1 million square feet of meeting space, including Colorado's largest resort, Gaylord Rockies Resort and Convention Center. As Colorado's third largest city, Aurora is located minutes away from Denver International Airport and showcases mountain views, memorable meeting spaces, and 250 plus international eateries that offer a unique experience for each and every visitor. As the gateway to the Rockies, Visit Aurora's role in the local community goes beyond marketing the city as a destination. The Visit Aurora team is here to assist you with your Colorado visit from facilitating your meeting, event, or convention to helping you discover local flavor and attractions. Go beyond the boardroom in Aurora, Colorado. For more, visit us at visitaurora.com.